going to talk about regret. Before we go there, let's, let's go to Luke 22. This will be on the screens. And we're going to talk about several people, but we're going to start here talking about two of the disciples and their regret. They did similar things, and they both felt regret, but how they felt regret was quite different. You go to Luke 22, verse 54. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house, and Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord. Now he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Now turn to Matthew 27. The story of Peter's denial is recorded in all the Gospels, and it's very similar in all of them. In John, we have the added detail of that Jesus looked. that This was happening right near where Jesus was. So Matthew 27... Verses, start in verse 3. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priest and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, and he went and hanged himself. So we have two disciples that they were part of the closest group of Jesus in his ministry on earth. And we know more, this is not the only ways we can describe these guys, we know much more before these events occurred and we will learn much more after, particularly of Peter. Um, But they both have a great sin. They both in some way are denying that Jesus is Lord. Judas does it by by telling the authorities, there he is. That's the one. If he, was really the, if he really believed in him, if he really trusted in him, would he have done that? And then Peter, when asked, is, are you his friend? Is that the one? Or were you with him? He says, no. He lies. He's either ashamed or he's scared. He's in fear. But both of them, after they commit these grievous sins, are filled with regret. We see it in Peter. He says he went out and wept. He recognized his wrong. We see it in Judas in that he goes back. If you're reading the King James, the the word translated there says uh, in verse 3, ESV, I think New King James both say he changed his mind. The King James says he repented. So let's stop there and say that the idea of repentance and you've heard this if you've been in church a long time, 
is not just saying, I'm sorry. It's having a change of heart and a change of direction. Now, throughout the Bible, sometimes it carries slightly different, and sometimes that's based off of the Greek words used. That's one of the cases here. That's why many of the translations vary a little bit in how they translate it to English. We know that the repentance of Judas was not the same as the repentance of Peter. Because Peter, we will come to see, lives in great power in the spirit and in faith and is willing to say these, willing to acknowledge his failings. Judas could not deal with them and he killed himself. So what is regret? We can't look back on our past life. I guarantee, I promise you, all of us, Cannot look back on our past life without seeing some things to regret. I mean, I'm going to guess that's the case. And don't feel, if you look at your past life and see some things you regret, you should think, well, I'm one of the crowd. I think that applies to every person, every Christian. And this is as it should be. And it's perfectly fine to look back and see things we regret. But it's wrong to be miserable about them and to live dejected. And sometimes there's a fine line between that. There's a type of regret that, in your heart that can ruin your life. It can make a shipwreck of your faith. It can cause you to bail out of church, of the Christian life, because you're overwhelmed by it. You give up because so many things in the, there are so many things in the past to feel regret for. But there is a way to fight that. But not all regret is bad. There's a good place for regret. Uh, We're going to go to 2 Corinthians 7. Not all regret is owing to unbelief. There's good regret. There's godly regret. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 7. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. I'm going to reread this last sentence. It's very important. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So we know... The Corinthians, we have two letters to the Corinthians in our Bible. We know from those letters that there were more letters to the Corinthians. But it was not the Lord's will that those be part of our scripture. But they are referenced. And as Paul was working with this church through some of the issues they were having, um, he wrote a letter. And he's saying in this, this is what he's saying. He goes, I sent this letter and as I sent it, I was grieved that this was going to hit like a bomb. And it was going to lead to some, some grief among you. And he, and he says, going back to the beginning of this verse, if I made you grieve with my letter, which he did, he says, I do not regret it. And then he says, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, for only, though only for a while. And the reason he, he was afraid, if I create an ungodly grief in these people, This will be a grief that does not lead to godly ends. It will lead uh, to sin and ultimately to death. But he says, the grief that this letter presented you, I'm now grateful for that I did it. I, I don't regret it because that grief led 
to your salvation, to your repentance. And that is godly regret versus worldly regret, or godly grief versus worldly grief. Godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation, and it brings no regret in the end. But worldly grief produces death. This grief, the worldly grief, is a grief that being so overwhelmed by the significance of something in the past that you never make recovery. Or you become embittered or depressed or think there is no future. Satan begins to lie and tell you there's no way that you can recoup. There's no way in the future that you can make up for this shortfall, for this failing. That's worldly grief. That's worldly regret. And that is not godly. There are people, and I think... There's, there's many types of kind of a spiritual depression and spiritual grief. It can have many causes. It can be physical, and you're not going to go after somebody and say like, oh, you're, you're feeling too bad about your physical state. If you feel bad, you feel bad. If you're hurting, you hurt. I'm talking physical. And that can affect your emotional. And there's things you can do to help that um, Part of that is fellowship, part of that is prayer, part of that is uh, sometimes medicine. Uh, A headache causes me grief, but an aleve helps a lot. (laughs) Now there's some headaches, the aleve does nothing, and sleep helps a lot. Sometimes we're our own worst enemies to to not feeling right. I think we're learning that more and more... um, when it, in regards to health and sleep and habits. But, let's be honest, as these bodies age, we have more reasons to hurt. We also have more life behind us, and we have more regrets. We have more loss. We have the pain of losing loved ones. We've, we see more and more. Nobody is, is free of this from, any, from the youngest age, but the older we get... And there's something else about retirement that creates space for the devil to do things in our heads. When we're busy, when we're occupied, it keeps us occupied. But when we leave things empty, if we're not filling them with good, if we're not looking to Jesus, something else will become our focus. And if our focus is inward... And we should look inside. We should try to understand ourselves. But if we spend all of our time inwardly oriented, it can be a very sour thing to see. And it can make us, it can make us sick. It can fill us with regret. So Peter versus Judas. Both of the twelve, both filled with a kind of regret, but one different than the other. Judas' repentance, he changed his mind. But he was not made well in that. But we know that Peter would, would be. There's, there's more to it than that. <clears throat> but Jesus looked at Peter. He loved Peter. He had warned Peter that this would happen. He said, Satan is going to sift you. And Jesus said, I prayed for you that your faith fail not. Okay, in that sentence in Luke twenty-two thirty-two, that's a powerful statement. I, it's one that's easy to forget. Jesus said to Peter, I prayed for you that your faith wouldn't fail. Okay, that sentence is a theological treatise in itself. 
Jesus prayed for something to happen. He prayed to the Father. And what was that thing to happen? That Peter's faith would not fail. So, there's a lot of things we can do that trip us up on our life of faith. But without God's work in our faith, bringing us to faith, enlivening our faith, keeping our faith, we're lost. And this verse alone points to that. All of Scripture points to that. But this is another reminder, and it comes from the words of Jesus who says, I've prayed for you, Peter, that your faith wouldn't fail. And you know what? If I was Peter, in retrospect, because we get to see what happened, I would say, I would think, Oh, thank you, Jesus. That gives me all the hope I need. Because my faith probably will fail. But you're praying for me. And I know that the source of it all is you. Peter would learn that. Uh, he learns it the hard way. It seems like Peter has to learn everything the hard way. Um, but as Peter's a great example for us because we often do the same thing. <clears throat> but Judas, he didn't have faith. He had regret, but he didn't have faith. If he would have had faith, things would have turned out different for him. But he didn't have faith. What characterizes godly regret? So we, let's talk some more details of godly regret. It's not that it, it is a faith one that leads to repentance, a, a regret that leads to repentance. And that repentance, that regret through that repentance can lead to joy and to newness, to things opposite of death. Spiritual death. So what are some things that characterize it? One, it must be felt. If you sin, you must feel regret. It's not just a technical list of, oh, I checked that box, the sin box. Got to go over here and take care of the regret box. If you don't feel it, your response is not real. Now, I've shared this with some of you in choir. When we pray for people, how many people in something you're a part of, a small group, in here, we make prayer requests? And sometimes, I hope I don't offend anybody here, but I might. Sometimes we're asked to pray for things, and we're like, yeah, I don't know your fourth cousin's you know, high school track coach, but yeah, I'll pray for them. Now, the onus is on us to love the people that are asking for prayer and to think, I'm praying Lord, you work all things out for our good, including this situation, that I have really no clue who they are. And I sometimes think the person asking for prayer may not know who they are either. They just like to share things. But if we pray for stuff and we don't really care for it, we're not praying for it. We're just babbling. It has to be felt. If I said, I love you, Barlia, here's a rose. And I just thought, because that's what the card said to say. And I don't feel it. Am I a very good husband in that? That rose is ugly. That act is ugly because it's not representing truth. Now, if I say the same things, but in my heart, I'm just like, I love to give you this rose. I love to give you this because I love you. It's the same act, but from the heart, which the Lord sees, it changes everything. That's the same in the way we feel regret, in the regret of our sin. And go to Psalm 32. We must feel it. And the Psalms are a great place to look for feeling. They're dripping with feeling and emotion. The psalmist says in Psalm 32, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. 
I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. If you hold on to your sin, if you don't admit it or acknowledge it or feel it, your bones are going to rot. Metaphorically, your body, like the psalmist said, my bones wasted away. He felt the weight of his sin, of his iniquity, of his regret. So the first step is to have this regret, to feel it, to admit it, not to hide it, say it to God's face. Then the second step is to, as as much as possible, make it right. This is something we can over-spiritualize and say, okay, I feel it, I've asked for sin, we're all good. We're not all good. If I've done wrong against somebody, what can I do to make it right? Zacchaeus is an example of this. What did Zacchaeus do after he came to faith, after he met with the Lord? He made right the wrongs he'd done. He returned money. He gave goods to the poor. He had been stealing. He was covetous. He was a tax collector, and he had done many wrong things. But after his heart was changed, he didn't just say, I'm not going to do that anymore. He made right some of the things he'd done wrong. We can't always do that, though. Particularly if you look back in your past and you think, okay, I can think of specific people. I can think of things I said. Some of them are petty. I mean, they're little, and you think, well, that's not that big a deal. But it hurts somebody. I can think of things I said to people in high school or were said to me, and I'm never going to see that person again. I might, but they might be dead. And a lot of people carry around regret because they can't say to the person, I'm sorry, or figure out what it was about because they're gone but we don't have to. Our sins are forgiven. What's done is done, but if you, as much as you can to make things right, we are called to try to do good and to make things right. That's part of getting over regret, but it's not all on us. Seek to make things right. Seek to do that face-to-face. If you've got this regret inside of you for something you've done or you've been hurt or you've let someone down, or you've sinned against someone, seek that out, but recognize that that can't always happen. And that doesn't mean you have to hold on to it and you have to give it victory, let it have victory over you. So getting victory over regret. So those are two things we can do, but what's more important is what God has done. And we must lay hold of what God has done to get victory. One is that God has forgiven our sins. God is slow to anger, abounding in mercy, full of loving kindness and compassion, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Christ has been laid down as the propitiation for our sin. There is no other. We don't have to make one. It has been made. Our sins are forgiven. Psalm 106, let's go there. This, we're going to go to the Old Testament for two examples of this because this is how the children of Israel, when they were trusting in God in their faith, they recognized that they were sinners and they recognized that they were forgiven. Psalm 106, verse 6. Both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. Think of the children of Israel. We've been talking about them. They're in Deuteronomy now as we went through Numbers. 
in this psalm, which was part of their worship, still would be and is, but for their worship, it's part of our worship too. We, we can say the same things. They said in part of their worship, we sinned, our father sinned, and we have sinned, and we've committed iniquity, we've done wickedness. When we were in Egypt, we forgot about you, Lord, and that was sinful. And even at the Red Sea, we wanted to turn back. And then he says, but you saved us for your name's sake, that you, Lord, might make known your mighty power. And that's the same with us. Psalm 107. Psalm 107 is a great psalm, and it tells these three examples of people who are at the depths of despair. And what do they do? They cry out to God. People that are hopeless, afflicted, in bondage and sickness, and God redeems them. Verse 10. Some sat in darkness and in gloom, prisoners in affliction and in irons. For they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. Their hearts were bowed down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and gloom, broke their bonds asunder. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wonderful works to the sons of men. So going back to the beginning of that, some sat in darkness and gloom, prisoners in afflictions and in irons. So they're afflicted, they're imprisoned, and why? They had rebelled against the words of God. They'd spurned the counsel of the Most High. In our life at times, have we ever done that? You say, well, maybe before I was saved, but since you've been saved, you've ever, even in the smallest thing, have you ever rebelled against the words of God? Yeah. Is it caused some gloom? Perhaps. Have I felt imprisoned? Yes. And if I look at my life before Christ, I've got to realize I'm in the dark dungeon. There's no light. But it says, He brought them out of darkness and gloom. broke their bonds. If we're in bondage, the Lord is about breaking bondage. And then we thank Him for His steadfast love. The point here is that all throughout God's Word, God is a God of forgiveness. He's a God of wrath against sin, but he is a God who forgives. That makes all the difference. Hundreds of promises, hundreds of stories of people being penitent, of people asking forgiveness, and God grants it. So we talked about the two things we should do, right? Recognize regret, try to make amends, try to do right, try to make up for what we've done. We can't make it go away but to try to move forward in a way that's reparative rather than dwelling in it. And then the things God has done, which are more important. God forgives us, and then here's what's really good. God makes things good. It's a unique ability that he has that we don't have. He can turn anything to good, and he's doing that. We think we've made mistakes, and we've really just ruined things. Or we look back on our life and just say, boy, if I'd have gotten straightened out a lot earlier, life would have been a lot better. I could have done a lot more for the Lord. I've got all these people mad at me. I've made myself a fool. I've ruined my future. Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who love him and are called according to his purpose. In Romans eight thirty seven, What shall separate us from the love of Christ? 
I'm going to read a little more of that. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all things, we are more than conquerors. So we go back and we look at God who is sovereign over all things. And the Lord is saying, there's nothing. There's nothing. There's no circumstance. There's no past. There's no present act that you've done that God cannot weave into a beautiful tapestry. I've heard the example made of a mosaic. Anybody ever seen a mosaic? Of course, if you get really close to a mosaic, it doesn't make any sense. It's just little pieces of broken glass or plates. But the further away you get, you begin to see a picture emerge. And if you get really far back, you don't see all those broken pieces. You see what looks like an image. And we look at a, a mosaic and we see an image, but if you think of the ancients, they didn't have photography. A good mosaic, you'd see it and you'd think... It looks like the real thing. It's better than real. We see photos. We're, we're spoiled by photos and television and all that. We look at art a little differently, but a mosaic, and it wasn't even, and I would go further as someone interested in these things and say, a mosaic doesn't just represent the real thing. There's something more beautiful in it. The reflections, the variety, the, the things that are just not quite exact but they've been made, in, and that's what the Lord is doing. He's taken broken people and broken things, and he's making something good of them. That's what God does. So we must fight this unbelief, this lack of faith that says, everything's ruined, it's all over, my future is unredeemable. I might as well just go live for the devil, have fun now, because it's all so bad anyway. That's doubt, that's unbelief, that's lack of faith, and it does lead to death. But God's Word gives us the tools, the sword, to slice that all up. Take, read about the promises of God, His sovereignty. Trust in, in His Word. Trust in Romans. He's working all things together for good, for those who love Him. Those are the two, thing, two of the things God has done, forgiving us and that He is actively working. And then we acknowledge what we regret, and then we try to see good. But then we have to remember and forget. I could say, dwell, try to remember everything you've ever regretted. And that's probably not going to be healthy for any of us. But it also would be unhealthy for us to just say, never remember anything you've ever done wrong or that you regret. No, we should. We live a life with some regret. And those regrets can be for good, godly regret, or they can be worldly regret, which leads to death. We remember our regrets to a point. It's good. It's good to feel regret up to a point. A life without regrets is not a real life. It's a mirage. It's a pretend thing. If you don't see some sin when you're looking back in your life, and you don't regret those sins, you're not looking at reality. You don't understand sin. You don't understand your need for a Savior. We've all sinned. There's plenty of words, deeds, attitudes, that we've had that don't seek to glorify God. They're not done in faith. They were done for our own glory. Or they were uncaring. Or they were mean. They were done out of anger, fear, hurt. They didn't come from faith. Which says everything that doesn't come from faith is sin. There's plenty of things that have come out of our mouths that we're not building people up. There's 
plenty of good things we've done that we did for the wrong motives. We have regrets. And Paul tells us to remember those. Go to Ephesians 2. In one place he tells us to remember them, several places. And Paul remembers his. He says in Ephesus, verse 2, Ephesians, Ephesians 2, verse 12, Remember that you were at the time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. They're commanded to remember their condition before salvation. Remember, don't forget. And the reason for this is that this is a memory that should stir us not to bemoan how bad we were, but to bring glory to God who saved us. To be thankful for grace. The most lost person is probably the person that says, I'm glad Christ died to save sinners. I don't need that. That's a lost person who says, good thing I never sinned. Christ didn't have to die for me. That's what you're saying. And that is, that's blasphemy. That's, that may be the unpardonable sin. That is a sin that says, I'm not a sinner. But the Lord says, all have sinned. And when we remember that, it should stir us to thankfulness for grace because God saves sinners. Stir us to gratitude towards God. Paul never forgot his past. He says, uh, I didn't put this verse in, in there, but uh, in, in 1 Timothy, he says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. That's how Paul talks about his regret. He said, you want to talk about regret? I was the worst sinner ever. I'm the foremost of sinners. Maybe there's some that are tied with me, but I'm the worst. That's regret. He never forgot it. But it was a regret that looked to Jesus and said, Jesus came to save sinners like me. Even the worst ones, like me. So we remember. But there's a time for forgetting, too. There's a time to forget our regrets. Paul says this in Philippians 3. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. That is, I haven't become perfect. I haven't arrived yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So in Ephesians, Paul has told them, remember where you were. But to the Philippians, he says, forget. You need to throw this off so you can strive forward. When do you do what? That's a good question. When do you remember? When do you forget? And I think this is a good rule. When remembering our failures helps us to fly to Christ, to seek Him. We sing a song. I'm trying to remember the name of the song. I'm not. I forget the names of songs really bad. But it actually has a line that is taken. It's a variation of something Charles Spurgeon said about Christ, about troubles. And he said, I'm thankful for the waves that smash me into the rock of Christ. So, we sing a song that, that one of the lines um, takes, uses that phrase in a, 
more poetic way to make it rhyme. I can't remember what it is at the time. But if our sins, if our regrets, if remembering them helps us move and look at Christ, then it's worth remembering them. If our failures help us love Christ, rest in Christ, cherish His grace, sing of His mercy, serve with zeal like Paul did, then get on remembering and get on regretting. But if our remembering, our regrets, and our regretting paralyze us, if they stop us, if they hold us by this weight of failure and remorse so that we don't love Christ anymore, or we just look, we cherish ourselves and not grace, or we just judge ourselves constantly, if, if they don't cause us to serve with greater energy, greater zeal, then forget them. Press on. Look to grace and forget about that because our time is short. That's the main thing. Press forward. If regret helps you in doing that, if remembering regrets and sins help you do that, remember them. If it holds you back, forget them. Now, I was telling you this book. It's Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great pastor of the last century. He wrote a book on, called Spiritual Depression. It's a great book. It's a series of sermons he did, and I've been reading it for several weeks. Very good. I'm going to read you just some quotes because he's spitting fire at, the, at this point in these sermons. And he's talking about this issue of regret. And he comes to it and he says, Christians, okay, here's it. I'll, I'll introduce this way. Common sense is something that some Christians over-spiritualize and think, oh, well, we shouldn't use common sense. I need to, need to have a spiritual reason for everything. And Lloyd-Jones, I think, is right, and he says, Christians are many things. They're, they're people that have a lot more as a Christian. But what they have is common sense. They should have common sense. If you put your hand on the stove and it's hot, you pull it back. You don't pray about whether you should or not. You know it's going to hurt you. And so when he says, common sense says these things. These are quotes from Lloyd-Jones. I got a bunch of them because they're so good. And they're convicting. And they may hurt. They may sting. They did me when I To be miserable in the present because of some failure in the past is a sheer waste of time and energy. The past cannot be recalled. There is nothing you can do about it. You can sit down and be miserable and go around and around in circles of regret for the rest of your life, but it will make no difference to what you have done. That's common sense. I can't undo the past. The world in its wisdom tells us, no use crying over spilt milk. Lloyd-Jones says, quote that to the devil. When the devil comes and says, remember what you did? Remember 20 years ago? Remember 50 years ago? You're not worthy of this life. You're not worthy of Christ. (laughs) Tell the devil, no use crying over spilt milk, devil. I can't change that. The Lord changed me. The Lord died for my sins. I I trust in him. Here's another quote. Let us lay this down as principle. We must never for a second worry about anything that cannot be affected or changed by us. It is a waste of energy. If you can do nothing about a situation, stop thinking about it. If you do think about it, it is the devil defeating you. Vague, useless regrets must be dismissed as irrational. And in the sermon, I didn't quote all this, but one of the things Lloyd-Jones is saying is that a lot of people, and he's a pastor, he counsels many people, they come to him and they say, Oh, pastor, I just, you know, I, I just keep thinking of this thing I did, this thing in my past. Or I came to the Lord late in life, 
And what a waste all my life is. I just can't get over that. Or they just, and it's vague. Like he said, vague. Oh, I just feel bad about the things I did. Well, what was it? Well, just, you know, my life before. It's like, you're wasting your time. And mine, I think is what he's saying. Get on with life. To dwell in the past simply causes failure in the present. You are crippling yourself and preventing yourself from working in the present. It is always wrong to mortgage the present by the past. It is always wrong to allow the past to put a break upon the present. Let the dead bury its dead. These are things you hear and you say, well, duh, that's common sense. But how often do we find ourselves mortgaging the present with the past? It's very easy to do. One reason it's easy to do is because it appeals to our pride. You've probably heard it said, humility, I shouldn't say humility, humility is a good thing. There are wrong types of humility. And one of those is self-pity. Some people think when I self-pity is a type of humility. No, it's not. It's a type of pride. Self-pity is a type of pride. It's inward looking. It's focused on self. And it's judging and saying, for some reason, things are not as good as they should be. Or I've done wrong. I've made a mess of my life. And I'm just going to keep dwelling on it. You're looking at yourself. You're not looking out. You should look at Christ. And... It betrays what we say. He says this in response to somebody saying, oh, woe is me, I just, this past, I can't get past it. He says, if you really believed what you say about the past, the thing to do is to make up for it in the present. Why are you wasting energy telling me about the past which you cannot undo? Put your energy in the present. You do not really believe what you're saying. If you have, if you regret a wasted past... Make up for it in the present. Give yourself entirely to living in the present moment. And this is what the Apostle Paul does. Let's go to the last scripture here, 1 Corinthians 15. We talked about Paul before. Paul persecuted the church. And I think we often think, well, he did that for you know, a year or two. No, most of his life was spent persecuting the church. And not just persecuting. He was present at the murder of Christians. Verse 1, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And I imagine as Paul wrote that, he'd think, no thanks to me. Then he appeared to James, then to the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Stop there. Paul says, cut some regret. I was called to be an apostle. I was the last. I'm the least. And why? I'm not worthy. My past. You want to talk about it? It's bad in regards to Christ, in regards to the church. But then he says in verse 10, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder 
than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. So Paul comes now with his regret, which could have just stuck him in the corner and felt he could have become a hermit and he could have been agonized over his sin. And he even says, look, I'm the least of the apostles. Here's why. All of those guys, whatever their faults were, not as bad as mine. But he says, you know what? The grace of God, I am what I am. And there's another answer. You can tell the devil, no use crying over spilt milk, devil. You can also tell him, you know what, devil, by the grace of God, I am what I am. You're right. I did that. You're right. I thought that. I said that. I hurt them. You're right. I never forgave them, and now I can't face to face. You're right, devil. By the grace of God, I am what I am. He glorified God, and he had zeal in his life. Paul spent much of his life persecuting Christians. He had regrets, but he didn't let it paralyze him. He turns that regret into awe at the amazing grace that brought him in. If I'm focused on myself, I can't focus on Christ. And if I'm focused on Christ, what can I not focus on? Myself. If I am focused on Christ, I see myself in the light of Christ. And it changes what I see. Just as Christ changes what the Lord sees in me. He lived a life with zeal. Paul, I'm sure, thought, you know what? I came late. I'm the last of the apostles. I'm the least. And Paul says, well, I got a late start, but I ain't going to let that stop me. And then he says, by the grace of God, I've done more. He, and he had. He had spoke to more. He had covered more ground. And he recognizes that ability was not in him. It was God. He found a way to look at his sin, to remember his failures and his past in a way that led him to praise God and magnify his grace. And so that's the same with us. If we're looking at our sin and our past and we just bemoan it, if we're just, oh, woe is me, that's an ungodly, worldly grief that leads to death. If we look at our sin and we say, thank you, Jesus, for saving me, that's a godly grief, and it leads to repentance. Not just our own. It helps us to share that hope with others. He found a way to do it. What matters most, first of all, if you're a Christian, is not what you once were, but who you are, being in the present. When we find out, a brother, a sister in Christ, it shouldn't be our first thing to say, oh, what were you? What would you get saved from? Why would we do that to ourselves then? Recognize who we are, who we are in the now. I am what I am. What am I? Well, we can make a good list. What am I? Anybody want to shout something? What are we in Christ? A child of God. We are forgiven. We are joint heirs with Christ, our brother, heirs to the kingdom of our Father, God. We're adopted into God's family. We're going to heaven. We're reconciled to God by the blood of Son on His cross. Those are some great things to be. Those are some great, I am what I am. You know what that is? I'm forgiven, a child of God. Yep, you're right. Those things happened. I regret that I did them. But I am what I am. And I don't regret what Christ did. Don't be preoccupied with yourself. A position of humility and a preoccupation, a contrition, can be a mock modesty. It can be a type of pride. There's another verse I didn't list it where Paul, he says, he's talking, he's writing to the church and he says, a lot of people would judge me, but I'm not even going to judge myself. Why? Because 
God is the judge. We've got to remember that. We're judging ourselves. We're judging our past. We've made ourselves in a position that's God's position alone. It's not a good thing to do, and it's not healthy for us. We must forget ourselves. We must look to Christ. If we spent more time looking at him, it'd be easier to do so. It's 2 Corinthians 3.18, last verse. We'll finish here. 2 Corinthians 3.18. I gave David a lot, so I don't know if he caught up with this. Okay, I didn't give him that one, sorry. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into this same image from one degree of glory to another. Read that again. And we all, with unveiled face, the veil has been removed. There was a veil on our face. We couldn't see God. We couldn't see the glory of the Lord before we were saved. So we can say, well, I regret that was the case. Sorry, that was the case. You couldn't do anything about it. You couldn't see the glory of the Lord before the Lord saved you. Your face now is unveiled, and you can see the glory of the Lord, but you've got to look to Him. You've got to look in His Word. You've got to pray with the Spirit in you. You've given power to see the glory of the Lord in His Word and to pray to Him. The Spirit's helping you do that. You couldn't do without it. What does that do? That transforms us. We talked about justification. One of the first things we said in here is the work that Christ did is He saved us. We're justified. That's done once and forever. But this work of sanctification is happening to us now unto glory. And part of how that happens is we do this. We behold the unveiled face, the glory of... With our unveiled face, we behold the glory of the Lord. We look at His face that we see through Scripture, His glory. And by that, we're transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So part of this life of sanctification is we have to look at the Lord. If we're looking at ourselves all the time, if we're looking at our past and our regrets, we're wasting time. The Lord will, will sanctify us. He will finish that. Nobody, the moment before death, is fully sanctified. But upon that, the Lord completes the work in glory. And that's our hope. He will change us. But He is changing us now. Let us be changed. Let godly regret point us to Christ. And let's look at Him. Let's pray. And we'll go. I hope, I know that... Um, it's a hard thing. There are some things in our lives that are like a mountain that we just can't cross. Or we don't even want to touch it because it hurts. But don't make it that you've made it a holy mountain that you can't touch, that you can't deal with, that you can't walk around. And remember it's there. You don't have to conquer it. The Lord has conquered it for us. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your mercy and grace. Lord, thank you for saving us. Lord, thank you for, even though every one of us are undeserving and often unloving, often angry, often vindictive, often prideful, often thinking of ourselves much more than we should, and of you, Lord, not nearly enough, Lord, that you saved us anyway because you loved us. Lord, help us cling to the mercy and grace that you promised us, the, the many promises, the hope that we have of glory and of a life now in your kingdom of joy, of happiness, of forgiveness, of victory over the failings we've had and healing through the hurts that we've caused or that have been placed on us, Lord. Help us to seek you in these things. Help us to be honest about who we are to ourselves and to you, Lord, to others. And Lord, just... Constantly remember your goodness 
your mercy and your sovereignty and that we can trust in your promises. Be with us now as we go to worship, Lord. We thank you for your blessings. In Jesus' name, amen.